gratitude towards God, their gratitude and thankfulness towards others. And so I'm thankful for this church and the privilege that I have to come to open God's Word. So let's bow our heads this morning as we come to God's Word. Father, we thank you that we can come to open up the pages of your Word and to see you on display in all your glory and majesty, to see through your revelation that there is a plan that within that plan you are bringing it about on how there is a people to worship your son and to praise him forever and ever for what he has done for us. And so, Father, for our lives to be changed, for our lives to be touched by your spirit, we ask that you can give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that your word will be enlightened within our own minds and so that we can leave this place changed from our time of worship that we have had. So thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Genesis chapter 48. And this is actually a part two of a message I gave about five, six months ago, to where within that message I said this was a two-hour sermon for all of the different parts sort of needed to be sort of put all together and heard, and heard in one sitting. But that's okay. We're going to review some. And so um, this is a very uh, special message for as, as we come to Genesis chapter 48, we are reminded that we are in the midst of the story of Joseph. And what we have been saying all along that with this story, it isn't actually centered around Joseph himself, but it is actually a continuation of Joseph and his family. Within this story, God is telling the Hebrew people that he is providentially always working in, in their lives, that no matter what circumstance may come about, he is there orchestrating those things for their good. And so, as we come to this one passage, and as the closing verses in chapter 47 sort of adds insight to chapters 48, we see Jacob at the end of his life. He knows that his time is short. And then within the entirety of this, we are going to see that he is there to bring about a special blessing to Joseph and his two sons. Ultimately, to adopt Ephraim and Manasseh. So let's be reminded of this text. And so I'm going to begin reading at verse 3. So follow along as we sort of read some um, highlighted verses. But this is God's infallible and inerrant word. Verse 3, Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your seed and after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. 
Jump down to verse 15. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and may my name live on in them, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. As we've been looking at this one chapter, um, it really breaks down into three areas. We saw that um, Jacob is preparing for his death. He knows that his time is short, and so he knew that there were some unfinished tasks that he needed to do. And so within this one section, we see um, that he has a testimony that he is about to give to Joseph and his grandsons. Along with that testimony, there is a proclamation of blessing to where it will close to where by the time he finished speaking, he adopts his grandsons as his own sons. And so Jacob knew his time was short, but those unfinished tasks God put upon his heart to proclaim to them an event to where he needed to verbalize some things as he shares his testimony with them. But why does Jacob um, give his testimony here? Because he wanted to give his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and for them to hear these stories again, a framework to pass on. He wanted to give them a legacy, a spiritual legacy. Because Jacob had some uh, major spiritual concerns for his grandsons. He knew that his grandchildren, they were born in Egypt. They grew up their entire lives so far in Egypt. They dressed like an Egyptian. They spoke like an Egyptian. And no, I'm not going to go there because I went there before. And so you can't make me. But they looked like Egyptians. And so... But even their other grandfather was an Egyptian priest. And so with them, they had a choice, a choice in which they can continue to look like an Egyptian or to be like the rest of their family as shepherds raising livestock within Egypt, but different from the people because they were Hebrews. They had a special relationship with Yahweh God that no other nation, no other people had a relationship. God revealed himself to them. 
and they were to be the light post to the world that if you wanted to worship the living God, you had to go and to look at them. And so he wants to leave them a spiritual legacy. A legacy is more than just the stuff you pass on. Here it's something more than that. It's more than just the possessions. He wants to give them an understanding of not only um, of their walk with God. And so he knows that by the time that they are over in this chapter, that um, Ephraim and Manasseh would be two of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so to accomplish this goal, he's going to give them a testimony about God and what, what God has done for them. And so we've been looking at three aspects, and he's going to tell them who God is. This is a picture of God and how he has revealed himself to us. He's going to tell them in this testimony what God has done for him. This is how God changed my life. And then lastly, he's going to tell them what he hopes God will do in their lives. And so it is a conscious effort that Jacob does to make clear to them, to reenact, if you would, through a firsthand retelling to Joseph, but also to his grandsons. This is God. This is how he's worked in my life. And this is how I want him to work in your life. And so we've been looking um, at this the last time that, we've, that, I, that I stood here. And let me just review what these aspects are before we pick up where we left off. And in these three areas, he starts with who God is. And there are eight aspects in these three area, areas that define who God is, that reinforces a large picture of God's character and how he works. First of all, um, he states that in verse 3 that he is the almighty God. He begins by saying, and Jacob said to Joseph, El Jadai. El meaning God, and Shaddai meaning all-powerful. He is the all-powerful one. So when you begin to look at God and who he is, it is a testimony that God is the all-powerful one, meaning he is absolutely dependent upon himself and no one else. He is reliable. He is faithful. He is unmovable. He is the all-sufficient one. And so that is the foundation of his testimony. It begins with El Jadai. But not only that, we saw at the next part of verse 3, secondly, that God is the God who has revealed himself to us. And he goes on to say, not only did El Jadai, but he appeared to me. It helps underscore the fact that God is not vague, He is not distant, He's not this unknowable entity, but He is a God who reveals. He has always revealed Himself to His people, and ultimately to where we have His Word, to where if you want to know um, the God of all creation, where do you go? You don't go to a mountaintop, you go to His, uh, to his Word, because there He has revealed Himself to man. And so Jacob wants his grandsons to know the fact that God is close, that he is noble. What is he like? And God is revealing himself to his people. But thirdly, in the last part of verse 3, 
He is also a God who blesses. He goes on to say that not only he appeared to him in the land of Luz, but also he has blessed me. God is a God who blesses and provides for his people. It's something that we need to be reminded of that. God is not going to be cheap with his blessing. He blesses his people lavishly, and we looked at that last time. And so God is the one who provides, and you can trust in him because he is a God who blesses his people. But fourthly, we saw in verse 4 that God is faithful to the promises that he has made to his people. Look at verse 4. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your seed, and after you for an everlasting possession. It's a retelling of the Abrahamic covenant beginning back in Genesis chapter 12 and reiterated in 15 and 17 of the book of Genesis, which centers around God is going to give his people a land, a seed, a blessing. And within that, there's going to be the promised one who will come to bear your sin. And so God has promised these things unconditionally to his people. And we see in verse 4, the absoluteness of it. I will make you fruitful. I will make you accompany people. I will give you this land to your seed. And with this land, it's going to have an everlasting aspect about it. And so God is faithful to his promises. And so because he is faithful, he wants to underscore the fact you can trust him no matter what goes on. So not only is God the Almighty God, not only is God who reveals himself, not only is God who blesses his people, not only is he faithful, but in verse 15, I want you to look at God is a God who communes with his people. We find God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. God is there for not just for him, but also for others who have come before him. He communes with his people. He is, they walked with him day by day. He was part of their lives. And this aspect of passing the baton goes on. And it's going to be the hallmark of the nation of Israel. And so it tells about the closeness of God between them and him. And so he has given everyone the opportunity to come and to commune with him if they turn to the God of, his, of the Hebrews. And so not only was God was real for both Abraham and Isaac, but also in the next part of verse 15, we find that God is a God who shepherds his people. We find God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. A shepherd is one who completely cares for his people. He guides, he protects, he tends to his needs, he provides, he knows his sheep by name, and his sheep knows him. And so this is what we said last time. This is the first time that God is referred to in Scripture as the shepherd to his people. And so he wants his grandsons to know that God is there. And he blesses them. How? Through the guidance, the protection, uh, his, his provision. He knows them by name. 
because he is the he is the shepherd. But also, as we saw last time, this is still review. But also, um, he is going to uh, begin to point out a second area that he wants to straight. Um, stress. Not only is this God, but also this is how He has begun to change my life. And so, seventhly, we see in the um, the next part of the verse the God who has been my shepherd all my life. God is a God who is personally known. He's just not this big entity in the sky who is out there. He is claiming God. He's my shepherd. I know him, and he knows me. I know him personally. And so it speaks of ownership. It speaks that you can just not, know, not only know about God, but you can have God as an integral part of your life to where there is ownership and you feel safe within his presence. And so this is a very important part of, of his testimony because he's probably been riding on the coattails of his, his forerunners' uh, faith. And now as he begins to tell his testimony, we're going to see how his life has been changed by God in a dramatic way. And so he's telling them, God, he's been my shepherd even when I was far from him. He was never far from me to guide me and to protect me. And so all of that is in review. We spent an hour on that one last time, but we're picking things up where we left off. And so number eight in the second area on how God has changed his life is found in verse 16. God is also a God who redeems. God is a redeemer for those who turn to him. Growing up, I don't know if you ever had, but one of those giant uh, jawbreakers, you know, they were candy, and you'd pop them in your mouth, and they would be sour. They would just, you, it looked harmless, and your friend would give you one, and you would pop it in, and you would have this explosion of flavor. Not necessarily good flavor, but an explosion of, of flavor, that's what we have here when you look at verse 16. It's an explosion of meaning in a short sentence. The angel who God has redeemed me from what? All evil. God redeems. And he doesn't just forgive some sin. He has forgiven me of all my sin. He's a redeemer. And I believe that as the passage begins to unfold, this is where uh, Jacob has come to faith in the Lord. This is where his, his knowledge of, of God was there, but he had no walk with God until the angel redeemed him. It's interesting because uh, this is the first time the word redeemer is found in Scripture. The word redeem, it's a Hebrew word which means to be bought back. Um, you would pay a price to buy someone out of slavery. It means to restore someone into freedom. And so if a person got into debt, they would sell themselves into slavery to pay back the debt that was owed. Sometimes even a relative could come alongside and help pay down that one debt to help free them. And so every person, we've been enslaved to sin. We're in bondage 
to sin, unable to free its grips. And so Jacob is saying that I was once there, but I've been changed by God because he has redeemed me. He has set me free from the sin and mess that I have done in my entire life. And so he came to a place where he saw his sin and he saw his ability not to be able to pay the debts owed to a holy, perfect God. And so he then put his complete trust in him to set him free from the pain and sin and guilt to follow the God of Abraham and Isaac. And so Jacob wants his grandsons to know that God has changed his life in this way. Not only do I know about God, but he has forgiven me of my sins. But the question comes, when? When did this happen in Jacob's life? Because though I sort of picked up the story at the beginning of Joseph's life, at the beginning of the pandemic, and we're still uh, plowing our way through, but we never really looked at Jacob's life. So the question comes, when did Jacob come to faith? Well, we're going to look at that. So turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 32. In Genesis chapter 32, this is where I believe Jacob came to faith in God. And it's interesting, as you turn there, Jacob has spoken to God before. He has had a number of dreams with God. He has heard the testimony of his grandfather and his father, but this is something different. He knew about God. He was on the coattails of their walk with God. But he didn't have a relationship with this God. And I believe until now, something happened to him where God changed him. And he wants his grandsons to know this exact story from his own words, from his own mouth. And so as this chapter begins to unfold... Jacob is troubled. He's deeply troubled. Look at verse 6. We find the messengers. He sent out messengers to find out where Esau was. When the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he is coming to you, and 400 men are with him. This part of the story, Jacob has been on the run. God tells him to go back to Canaan. And it's interesting because he thinks his brother Esau wants to kill him because he stole the the blessing that was intended to him. And so in verse 7, Jacob is greatly afraid and distressed. Not only is he afraid, he's greatly afraid. He is to the point of being distressed. He thinks his life is coming to an end. And so he fears his brother is going to kill him for the blessing that he stole. And he sees no way out of this situation. Because Esau is coming with a small army. And Jacob has his family and his servants and all of his possessions headed back. And he just thinks that Esau is just going to wipe them all out. And so he feels the weight of the world upon his shoulders. And he is here feeling that he has nowhere to turn. 
So as this passage sort of unfolds, he separates himself from his family. There's, there's a large stream. He has his family on the far side, and he's on the near side, just in case if Esau were to come, he would um, kill him, and then he'd be happy just with his death and not to kill his family. So he is by himself. It is the middle of the night. He feels himself completely and utterly in dire straits, not knowing what to do. And so for him, and what a lot of people do when they don't know where to turn, he finally gets around to pray. Look at verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who has said to me, return to your country and to your relative, and I will prosper you. And here, beginning God working in his heart, he says in verse 10, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff I have crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. And so he prays to God because he feels the weight of of the world on his shoulders, doesn't, doesn't know what to do. He feels that he's completely unworthy. And unless God acts, he sees um, the end of the road before him. Jump down to verse 24. And then we find this. And then Jacob was left alone. Sometimes there is no scarier place than to be left alone with you and your thoughts. And this is where Jacob is at. Because through Jacob's entire life, it was one of scheming, of planning, of just being deceitful to all those around him. And he felt he only had a few more hours to live. And then something happened. He was utterly alone until somebody grabs him. Look at the next part of verse 24. A man, somebody who's real, that you can touch with two legs and two arms, a head. There was a man in his presence, and he began wrestling with him. This unannounced man grabs hold of Jacob, and they begin to wrestle. That word wrestle there means to get dirty or to get dusty, and they're rolling around in the dirt. As the passage begins to unfold, Jacob begins to realize and to perceive this is no mere man. By the time this person leaves, he actually believes that he's been in the presence of God. So he was a man, but yet he was God. He was a God-man. He was a divine man who is now in his presence. He was God in human flesh. One who was truly God and truly man. 100% God because he's going to call the place after God. But yet he was a man just like him. This is the pre-incarnate picture of Christ. To where Christ appears before him before the incarnation. The one who has created the entire universe is now there in his presence And he's there to grab hold of him. 
and Jacob cannot get away. He cannot free himself. He cannot take advantage of the situation. This appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ happens a number of times within the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 16 is just one of them to where the angel of the Lord appears before Hagar by the spring of water in the wilderness and tells Hagar to go back to Sarah and to be with her. And by the time that she has finished talk, talking to this angel of the Lord, she realizes that she has seen God and had lived. And so this appearance in our passage here, this divine man was the um, initiator. Jacob didn't initiate this, this wrestling in the dirt. This divine man was the instigator. He was the one seeking out Jacob. Jacob did not seek him. Jacob was the passive. He was there all by himself, feeling the weight of the world. Then suddenly, in the darkness, this person grabbed him. This divine man was being active and lays hold of him. And they wrestle until daybreak. Nothing that Jacob did during this time gave him any kind of advantage. It was an ongoing struggle. And this is exactly what Christ does to us when we, before we come to know Christ. And every believer on the day in which God has changed your life can say the same thing. I was in a, I was in a struggle to where I was on the throne of my own life. I was the initiator. God didn't have a part of my life. I may have even looked very religious to where people thought, yeah, you, you have a walk with God. But it wasn't real. It wasn't genuine. And on the day that one receives Christ, he lays hold of you and doesn't let you go. A.W. Pink writes, writes this that I found interesting. He says, Jacob was not wrestling with this man to obtain a blessing. Instead, the man was wrestling with Jacob to gain some kind of object from him. This divine man wanted his life. Pink goes on to say that it was, reduced, it was to reduce Jacob to a sense of his nothingness. Jacob is there. He had nowhere to turn. And now, all of a sudden, this is not Esau wrestling with him, but some divine man to where he couldn't get go, let go. And he began to learn the, one of the most important lessons in life, that in our weakness lies our strength. Divine strength is made available when we begin to see our nothingness. See that we fall short. See that we are weak. Because as long as Jacob is strong in himself, he doesn't amount anything to God. He is here. His entire life was done one by human strength. And now he is brought to a place where he's completely helpless. Look at verse 25. When Jacob saw that he had not prevailed against him. No matter what he had done, he could not overcome this God-man. 
That word saw there is the Hebrew word that means to perceive or to learn. It's more than just he saw his situation, but he learned from this situation, there is no way that I could prevail against him. He intellectually saw his situation, and he knew that he was done. He could not prevail. And they wrestled and they wrestled until dawn began to break. And then look at the next part of this verse. And he, this divine man, touched the socket of his, of his thigh, meaning he just touched his thigh, and his thigh got dislocated. Immediately, Jacob was placed on the IR to where he was out of the game. And yes, that was a football quote, but that, that's okay. He, he was injured. He was crippled. He was so humbled to where now he was in immense pain just from a single touch. And so Jacob's life was brought down even lower through the pain that he has had. And this is what God does to those who think that they are the ones who are in control of their own life. Jesus is there to dislocate those things in our life anytime that he pleases. And I'm sure each one of us can testify to the fact that there are times in life to where we sense the weight of the world on our shoulders. We sense that there can be um, no ongoing path to, to follow whether or not it's through a job issue or some kind of financial situation or even a health situation or even maybe with our marriage situation. Suddenly our whole life can become dislocated to where God pulls the rug out from underneath our feet because there are times where our eyes are on ourself and God wants to make us aware that He is greater than us on our own throne. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, Have you ever had your life put out of joint by God? Have you ever had your little plans dislocated? You were trying to go your own way or to do your own thing, contrary to God's will, and suddenly out of the blue, God uses sickness or a loss of a job or some severe setback or disappointment to bring you to the end of yourself and to turn to Him. And so Jacob now is in immense pain, brought down low. But there's a turning point. It's an ironic turning point. However long this lasted, for an hour, five hours, we're not told. We're just told it's nighttime, and then all of a sudden, in verse 26, we find the dawn is breaking, and this man says, let me go. My time is done. Dawn is breaking. And so, this is different than the past few hours that Jacob has been wrestling with him. For somehow, Jacob has been trying to get away from this man. Then all of a sudden, this divine man touches his hip, puts him on the IR, the injured reserve, and he is, he is now in immense pain, and now he will not let go of this divine man. I am not letting you go. Huh. That's different. 
Jacob now realized that he is in a place that if he let him go, that he would be completely without everything. And so now this entire situation has flipped. He has been prevailing. But look at the next part of the verse. We see Jacob's response. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Striking. He is asking for a blessing from this divine man. He feels, he's been feeling the weight of the world on his shoulders. He's been feeling completely hopeless. He has nowhere to turn but to turn from God because he realizes that this divine man was a source of all blessing, that he was the giver of blessings. And unless he's blessed by him, he has utterly no hope and he has utterly nowhere else to turn. He had nothing. And he says, unless you bless me, I have nothing and I am going to die. And with me is all of the promises that God has made within Israel. Because in the back of my mind, in the previous verses, he said, you promised that you're going to have a people through, through me. And if I die and my family dies, what then? And so he asked for a blessing. And he is going to hang on however long it takes until he gets a blessing from this person. Unless you bless me, I will not let you go because I have nothing at all. His entire life was one of plotting, deceiving. He's been self-willed, self-determined, self-reliant, self-driven, then all of a sudden he finds himself completely dependent on this man that he has been wrestling with. No longer can he conspire and trick his way out, for he was the con man of con mans. When you looked into a dictionary and looked up the word con man, his picture was there. And so he is forced to cling to this God man because it is the only blessing left for him. This is what happens to every person when they see their lostness. They see that they have nothing to where they can work their way to God. Their sin is greater than any kind of work that they could ever do because God is a holy God. And no matter what kind of righteous things that they think that they could do, it doesn't lessen one sin in their life. And so he realizes that unless he clings to this God-man, that he has nothing. And so for the believer, we cling to Christ after we come to faith because we know that everything that we have is dependent upon him. That's why our Lord says in John 15 and verse 5, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. And so when we figure that most of the things that we try to do without God's help in our life, it's really worthless. And so we cling to Christ for spiritual discernment, for spiritual power, for spiritual wisdom. We cling to Christ for spiritual guidance. And so in verse 27, he says to him, Jacob, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. 
Of course, this divine man knew his name because he knows everything. He created the world. He's omniscient. He knows Jacob's name, but why does he, why does he want Jacob to respond to the question? It's because a part of Jacob's name is his character. Jacob, the heel grabber. It went on to me the deceiver, the cheater, the supplanter. That's Jacob's life. He cheated his way through everything in his life. And this divine man wanted Jacob to see through the giving of his name, his lostness. Because everything that he had done in his past was his own self-righteousness. And, and he wanted to see and to acknowledge and to confess his sin. His life was nothing but a Jacob. And it's the same that for every person who has ever lived. They have fallen short of God's standard. We are all unrighteous, not even one. We look for answers, and we never find answers. We look to religion, and there's no satisfaction. We, we look for our, our, our own works to try to lessen the, and improve the state in which we are in. And we think that we ourselves are actually not that bad. We watch the evening news, and we said, those, those people are bad. They're, they're, they deserve hell. But me, I'm, I'm not like those people. I'm not that bad. But when you compare yourself to a holy God, yes, we are. And just as long as you think that you are fine and there's not that much wrong with you, you will never come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord. He came to save those who see their sins and they see their lostness, and their only solution is to turn and to cling to Him. He is a Savior of those who are perishing. And so he answers this man. He says, my name is Jacob. And in verse 28, and this is great, this man is going to give him a new name. Your name shall no longer be supplanter, deceiver, heel grabber, but it will be Israel. From this moment on, this divine man is saying that your life will never be the same. You will be a completely different person because you have a new name. A name for the Hebrew people defined the character. And God gives Jacob and he gives all of God's people a new name, a new character, a new standing that he has before him. No longer are we slaves to sin, as what Paul says in Romans 6, but we're now slaves to righteousness. We have a new master, and Jacob has a new name, Israel. In Israel, um, El is the last part of that name. It means God. Elohim, the God, um, is one of God's names, but we find it in other names in the Old Testament, Samuel, Dan, Daniel, Ezekiel, and so God is part of those names. And so he's given a new name, Israel. The first part means to fight or to dominate. So Israel means God dominates. God is in control. God prevails. God is in charge. 
And so when a person comes to Christ at that moment, they recognize that Jesus has the authority over their life. They have a new identity. They have a brand new life. No longer are they used to be the deceiver. But now they're under the control of God. They've been changed. They are a new creature. Every person who knows Christ as their Savior, they can testify that they have really two parts or two volumes in their life. They have the B.C. days, if you would, their life before Christ, and they have the W.C. days, the with Christ days. And so this is the way that I used to be. But God's changed me. He changed my walk. He changed my thinking. He changed my standing. He has declared me righteous for what the promised one um, was going to do for my sin. He has forgiven me for all my sins. They're all gone. They're all buried. And so from this moment on, Jacob is not relying on his accomplishments, on his way to change things, but he is a different person. Look, the next part of the verse says, For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And so this man that Jacob has been wrestling with was no mere man. He was God, and this is one of the places that defines that. He has striven with God and with men, men throughout his entire life, but also with this man, and he has prevailed. So Jacob was no longer in control of his life but God has changed him. No longer did he have a religious understanding of the God of Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifices and things that they had done, but now he had a genuine, genuine relationship with him. At the end part of verse 29, we find, and he blessed him there. He needed a blessing. He needed hope. He needed confidence. And now it's not in himself, but it's in God. And this divine man blesses him. So in verse 30, so Jacob named the place Peniel, the face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face. He has seen this man, but he also said that he's God. I have seen God face to face, yet my life had been preserved. Go back to chapter 48. Chapter 48, within our story, Jacob is telling the the testimony, and this is where that explosion of meaning comes into play. He is telling his grandchildren, who has probably heard this story before, but he wanted to say it personally one last time. The angel who has redeemed me, who has changed me, from all evil. That means so much more. There's meaning behind every one of those words. And he wants his grandsons to experience the same life-changing moment that they could actually know that their sins have been forgiven. He wants them to know not just about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their father Joseph, but he wants them to know him personally. So he says, this is what God's like. He's the almighty God. He is a God who reveals himself. He blesses his people. He is faithful. 
He is keeping the promises that he has made. He communes with his people. He's a shepherd. He is there to guide. He is there to provide. He is there for any need that you may have. And guess what? He's personally known. And this is what God has done to change my life. He has cleansed me from all evil. Not just some of it, but from all of it. Paul says a similar thing in, first, uh, in, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. It says, He has delivered us out of, the, out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Not everyone who thinks they're religious sort of knows God in this way. Because they think that when they look at their walk with God, look at what I've done. I've gone to church. I've given money. I'm not like those people. I'm, I'm different. They know about God, but they don't know Him personally. And that's why I love baptisms. I love doing weddings, though it's been a while since I've done a wedding. I, lo- I love doing weddings, but I love baptisms all the more. Because we get to hear the story of how God has changed a life. And there's something about hearing that story from a new believer. This is where I was. I was lost in my sin. And this is where I am now. And so Jacob wants his grandchildren to know his testimony. But that's not where he leaves it. Because there's a third element that he wants them to know how God has changed his life. Because thirdly, we're going to see not only is God a redeemer, but also Jacob is now a blessing giver. He wants his grandchildren to know that God changed his life so that he can now be one who gives blessing. How is this different? It's different in every way, that, the way that Jacob used to be. Jacob used to want his brother's blessing. He stole his brother's blessing. He tricked his father in getting the blessing. His entire life was one, I want the stuff. I want the power. I want the recognition. But now, God's changed him. He's the blessing giver. Chapter 48 and chapter 49, he's just giving blessing upon blessing upon blessing because God has blessed me. And so we see this. He knew about the blessings that God gave Abraham and Isaac from God. He knew about the covenant blessings that God has told him. He he knew how he has stolen those things. But now, since God has changed him, what's happened? He's blessed Pharaoh twice. He's bestowed blessing upon Joseph. and, And he's about to give blessing to his two grandsons. And he's about to give to his other sons blessing. This is a mighty change. He is now the encourager and the edifier. And so from where he used to be, the blessing robber, he is now the blessing giver. And that just underscores the fact that how much more that I need to be a blessing giver to those around me. Sometimes I'm just focused like on a Sunday morning, just what's going on in my life. But I don't see myself that the reason why God has called me to a certain place, but also 
is to, is to find out how is God working in your life? How can I pray for you? How can I be a blessing for you? Because sometimes when people attend church, just an observation, they could have the biggest smile on their face, but on the inside, they, they're crying their hearts out. And the prayer that goes up from my heart is, God, how can you use me to be a blessing giver? Jacob learned that hard rule, and now he is just giving blessing upon blessing. So as his testimony begins to sort of unfold, there's one last thing. Not only is he telling them who God is, this is how God has changed my life. <laughs> Not only has he saved me, he's turned, me, turned my life around, but he wants God, he wants his grandsons to know what, um, and he hopes what God will do in their own life. Look at verse 21, if you would. Verse 21, we find this. And then Israel, he's walking very godly. And from basically this point on, Jacob's name is not used. It's Israel. Yes, he's being used by God in a great way, and we don't see Jacob. That's besides the point. We'll talk more about that as chapter 49 unfolds. But then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I will give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. And so it was Jacob's desire that his entire family of shepherds to return back to the land. Egypt was never the final destination for God's people. And he has within his testimony what he hopes that God will do through their lives is to put within the hearts of, of their children and their children's children and their descendants, all of the people that come out of your loins, that they would want to go back to the land that God has promised, the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't want them to stay in Egypt with all of the greatness that Egypt has and all of the culture and all of the wealth and all of the spices and all of the education. That's not where the promises lie. And so he wants them to go back to the land, to have such a walk with God, a closeness with God, that that's their goal. When God opens the door, it's time for them to go back. And so it's teaching them what God wants them to do in their life to walk with Him. And look at verse 21, because time's fleeting. But there's another aspect. Not only does He want this desire to be back in the land and the promises that, he, that God has made, but also in verse 21, then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to, about to die, but God will be with you. God wants his grandsons to hear the fact, and God has given it to Joseph, that that is a foundational statement. Because we find this, not only was God with Abraham, and not only God was with um, Isaac, but in God, God's told uh, Jacob back in Genesis chapter 28 when his life was on the run in a previous time, God tells him, I'm with you. 
as you go. In Genesis chapter 31, God appears to him and he says, I am with you. God was with Joseph as Joseph is in prison. And all this stuff sort of unfolded, this misfortune unfolded within his life. We find in the text, God was with Joseph. And now, as he's about to die, he gives Joseph and his grandsons the reminder, whatever transpires, God has been with me and he will be with you also. It gives hope. God will be with them. They don't know there's 400 years that are coming to where they're going to be in bondage, severe bondage. The situations are going to change. Well, that's the book of Exodus and following. But yet, it's a reminder to his grandsons to hear it. God will be with them. So much so, the... Um, the prophets are going to say, and Isaiah is going to say, there's going to be the promised one, the Emmanuel, God with us. And so it's a great testimony that he gives, a great reminder to his grandchildren. This is who God is. You need to know him. This is how God has changed me. But it didn't stop there on, on, on his salvation because God has not, he's, con, he's been with me the entire time. Even when I was far away from him, God was there. So it begs the question, how is your testimony? How is your walk with God? If you had to tell someone your testimony on who God is, how he has changed your life, how he wants them to change your life, what would you tell them? Can you be called one like Jacob? I was a Jacob, but now God has given me a new name. Do you have that hope that if something were to happen with you today and you stand before God, do you have that confidence to know that I am a great sinner, that I am unworthy because you are a holy God? And somehow we think that we'll get off, um, get out of that wrath aspect. But if God sent his most beloved son that he loved to the cross to pay for my sin, how, how is it that you're going to get off the hook for your sin? You're not. But with him dying, he died in your place. And that's the hope and comfort. It's not religion. It's a relationship with him that when you see your lostness, you repent of your sin, and you turn and, and trust in Christ and what he has done, God grants you eternal life, and he declares you righteous at that point. That's a changed life. And then from that point, we can tell people, God is at work. Christian life is not easy. I'll be the first to admit that. But he is faithful. He is there. He is my shepherd. He has never left me because he has redeemed me. Father, so much more could be said. But we know that you are a God who knows where each one of us are here today. For I know that there are some who are hearing these words that they think that they have a walk with you but it's not right because it's by their own ability. 
It's by their own control. It's by their own efforts. It's by their own works. And they've been doing their entire life to where, look what I have done. But it's not in what Christ had done because all those things fall short of God's glory. And so when I see that Christ had taken my place upon the cross because of my sinfulness, I see my complete and utter worthlessness and I cling to Him with all strength that I have because that's the only hope that I have. But then I have more of a testimony on how God has been working and is active in my life because my trust is completely in Him. So, Father, if one is struggling today, we have, the, we have that concrete assurance to know that I can put my faith and trust in Him because He's been faithful in the past and He will continue to be faithful in the future because that may be all I have is that, is that trust in You. And so thank You, Father, that we have that strength that is only found in You that You give to us. So work in our hearts so that you can get the glory in Jesus' name.